This week on FX Guide TV, we discover the magic behind Arthur Christmas at Sony Pictures Imageworks. This and more coming up next. Hello, I'm Angie Dale and welcome to this special Christmas episode of FX Guide TV. Sony Pictures Animation and Aardman Animation in Bristol have combined forces to produce a new Christmas classic with an original take on Santa Claus, complete with cloaking devices, commando elves and bunny slippers. Mike recently visited the Sony backlot and sat down with members of the team who brought this delightful and visually complex film to life. Dear Santa, are you real? If you live at the North Pole, how come I can't see your house when I look on Google Earth? Does your sack have to get bigger every year because of exponential population growth? Ho, ho, ho. Drop time 18.14 seconds per household. Let's pick this up, people. The film is essentially a road film, so after you realize a child's been missed, Grand Santa and Arthur go out on this mission in the old sleigh, the, you know, the typical sleigh that we all know, which is capable of traveling at 16,000 miles an hour. And all the math was done so to figure out how to get around the world in one night. And to do that, we needed to show the viewer how far they were traveling, the size of the set that they were covering in any one given shot. And not to mention, it's all in a natural environment. It's a natural world for the most part. So you needed to see to the horizon. You needed, it needed to be recognizable to you. You needed to know immediately, I'm in the plains of Africa. You know, to the horizon in the plains of Africa, I expect to see this. Um, and with that, just, become, you know, just to, to sell that level of believability, of recognizability, as I say, you need to add the detail that goes with it. Otherwise, it comes up short. And in the case of Serengeti, you know, that's types of trees, types of rock formations, types of different types of soil, all of that was stuff we considered. And as much as possible, stuff that we modeled, we actually built into the set. Um, our, our, our current place in technology at this point in time allows us to really work with heavy data sets that we didn't used to be able to do. And for this film, this, with this huge appetite to give us the world essentially, um, we took it on. We we're like, well, let's push it to the edge. Let's see how big of a set we can build. Let's see how detailed we can actually model it in. The better your model, the better the better the lighting's going to go. And what's really interesting about Arthur Christmas is we're really leveraging the power of the ray tracer to help give us some of those sophisticated looks. So in the past, we might have simulated that with lots of layers of paint and lots of controls that might have been somewhat obtuse to the lighter. And now we're actually simulating realistic materials. And you know what? What makes me really happy about that movie is it's not um, a, a traditional looking photorealistic movie, but there's so much richness in all the materials that you get the, the exact picture that the art directors and the director were looking for. So in, in some ways it's sort of the, the holy grail of what we're trying to achieve with, uh, with our version of Arnold, which is um, a physically based renderer that gives you fast and predictable results, but allows for art direction. Um, just like you would if you were lighting on set, you know, there's plenty of opportunities for art direction. So now we're at the point where the artist can iterate in this environment, uh, in a physically based environment, but they have the knobs they need to be able to make a movie that looks like Arthur Christmas. So how does it work in terms of interfacing with other apps? So for example, uh, Arthur Christmas has some really good massive sims, because obviously lots of elves, um, going up and down stairs, which are conveniently irregularly sized. Yes. Um, how are you going there in terms of, because obviously out of Massive, it's natively a rib file. Everything just flow into 
the render up fine? So we have these procedural these procedurals that we have developed inside of Arnold. So Arnold is able to leverage off of our existing procedural system. So whether that's um, growing hair, which we do outside of Arnold, but we do it just in time for rendering, whether that's bringing in a massive sim, or even what we call our assemblies, the things that put together the control room, which is tens of thousands of components that put this whole thing together, all that is read by Arnold just in time. So when the ray hits the bounding box, at that point it goes and loads the geometry or creates the geometry on the fly. But some of those uh, agents had cloth sims, right? Was that also just in time? The cloth sim, I don't believe, was run just in time, but I'd actually have to talk to the guys who set that particular pipeline up to be sure. Okay. But my guess is we probably cached those off as Alembic files, or the, right. the format just pre preceding Alembic, um, to have them on disk ready to be loaded in for rendering. Because in be fact, Alembic guess. would actually be really good for that. Alembic would be absolutely perfect for that. And what the version of Alembic that we used on Arthur Christmas was uh, the, the predecessor, the version 0.9 of Alembic called HDF that we were uh, leveraging at the time in-house. The, the snow is definitely a um, tricky thing to render with some degree of believability because of the way that the light interacts with snow out in nature. Um, well, the main thing that happens with snow is light sort of tends to go inside the surface of the snow, bounce around and get uh, reflected back out on the shadow side, which is why there's often these blue dark shadow areas in snow that you see and we call that um, subsurface scattering and so yes we actually spent a lot of time designing that look and making sure that our um, surfaces caught all that all the subsurface quality of the snow also there's a lot of uh, ways of doing subsurface scattering we had to kind of go for the uh, the more sophisticated one, which involves ray tracing rather than Yeah, I was going to ask you about clouds. that because uh, presumably you'd want to use subsurface scattering on some of the lead characters, especially when you've got uh, anything like an ear or something, uh, some of the creatures. But how do the subsurface scattering properties of snow differ from doing work on, say, a, a creature type or a person or a character? Um, well, generally they're more directional based. They're more direction based. And also, since snow generally was flat, it was kind of hard to ever get that sense of uh, backscattering, you know, the glow coming through. So we had to use um, a ray traced uh, single scatter method, I guess, where um, you know there was a much greater sense of directionality than in the typical things we use for characters, which has a tendency to smooth things out and sometimes fill in the shadows a little bit, but doesn't always have that directionality to it. How, uh, how much sort of bounce were you doing in the ray tracing and how far did this have to go? Because obviously there are a lot of other surfaces interacting with that snow that is both reflecting it. There are high-tech and low-tech things that are going to be mm -hmm. reflecting stuff. Um, I mean, basically, it's, it, we always had to figure out the balance between the cost and the look. <laughs> so generally what we do is we, for expensive renders, we have some dummy geometry that you actually don't see in the primary render, but the geometry is in the scene, taking the place of some of the much higher resolution stuff, but is only being used for what we call secondary rays. So generally, we try to have a lightweight representation of the scene that serves the purpose of being seen through all these uh, complicated calculations. Because there are a lot of interactions with that snow as well, because we're talking about, you know, um, shadowing uh, from, from 
you know, if it's flat, but if a character's walking through snow, then they're going to leave a, a yes. path, and that's so that, that very was, expected. Uh, that was done. That was basically done by um, by standard effects, where you know the the character was being uh, was deforming a ground plane that was supposed to be the snow, and the footprint would sort of be left behind. So that that aspect of the physical interaction with the snow was handled in a more sort of typical fashion through standard. Um, effects technique. And there are some sort of big scale scenes where there's like a lot happening. Um, and in fact, there are, there are other scenes that I would imagine that ray tracing were a key aspect over, like for example, some of the water stuff when the ship's coming up and, um, and uh, revealing through and stuff. You know, another shot actually that I, really, that I really loved and that I probably spent the most time thinking about, um, at the beginning of the show, we didn't really know how many icebergs were going to be in the movie. Right. Um, this is the the part when they they leave the North Pole. So um, uh, earlier in the film. Earlier in the film, yeah. yeah, when they sort of take off um, from from the North Pole in the sleigh. So we we fly over a whole um, Arctic tundra, and then we kind of fly down at the end of the tundra where the ocean starts. And we there's this one shot in particular where we're uh, flying through icebergs. And so that, that, that shot, to me, that, that's kind of the, the glory shot of the movie for uh, my team and I. We, we spent a long time developing the ice look. And um, it's probably one of our most expensive renders as well because we just turned all the, all the fancy knobs up to 11 as far as refraction and, and um, subsurface scattering, all that kind of stuff. So we, at the beginning of the show, I, I probably spent about three or four months just working only on developing the look of ice and the layers of ice. Being able to, you know, when you, when you look at an ice cube, it's actually a pretty complex object. You know, what you're looking at is, is visually pretty complex. Most objects, like a plastic or whatever, you're just looking at the light bouncing off the surface. An ice cube, you're looking at partly what's behind being refracted, then you're seeing the interior uh, detail of the block of ice, little tiny bubble of internal cracks. Then you're seeing a reflection on top of, you know, you're seeing the surface of, of the ice, and then you're seeing any kind of frost and stuff on top of that. So we, this is where, you know, Arnold and the ray tracing was just really fun to use because all that stuff is in there, and uh, we, we, we had fun kind of breaking down all the layers and then kind of putting back together into something that you know, feels very much like ice. So that one shot is, uh, is definitely by far my favorite. So. so I just wonder if I could talk about the lighting for a second, because there are a number of really interesting shaders. I mean, quite frankly, the snow shaders are really nice, but, mm, but working the way out, there's, you know, you talk about the baubles and stuff. There's like a lot of interesting spec highlight stuff going on, but then there's a lot of stuff that has um, uh, much more depth in terms of, uh, I don't know, subsurface or whatever. How, what, mm. how are you to approach that? What was the... Well, one thing that's important to know is that we have the honor and the uh, responsibility of using a ray tracer for all of this, which is, you know, a sensical person would say that's too much, but we got great stuff with it. So just the fact that we're ray tracing alone, entire sets of the weight that I'm talking about, is, it's heavy, you know, it's, it's a slow process that, that, you know, we manage because of the, the the detail of the imagery that we're getting out of it. We're so happy with it. We find ways to composite smart to make up for the load that we're carrying. But as you say, the ice, the, the specular shaders that we're placing on snow globes or whatever, 
Ray tracing does that stuff so nice because, you know, you can get in, you can control rays. You can say, I want to do this many rays for subsurface. I want to do this many rays for indirect diffuse. You know, you can, you can really get into the physical aspects of lighting on an artistic level. And we wanted the look of the film to, to take advantage of that, quite frankly. I, you know, I knew what I was getting in the ray tracer. I knew, I knew what you had to give away to use it, and I knew what it gave you. So we designed all of our sets, took advantage of it. ICE is a perfect example because to get, ICE is one of those surfaces in life that people recognize pretty quickly, you know, and it doesn't look like anything else because of its refractive qualities its reflective qualities, the way it scatters light, all of that. It's not easily faked, you know, you can't come up with a surface shader that does ice very well. Um, so the fact that we were actually shooting rays through our surfaces, bouncing them out the other side, light contribution was coming from all directions in a, in a GI way, um, that's that's the perfect use of, of a ray tracer in my, in my mind. Yeah, and even the master control room with all of its reflective surfaces and stuff, it just seemed to me that uh, you could be hitting some pretty horrendous render times on that stuff. Mm, that set was immense. I mean, it was, it was one of those sets where... Was that the worst set? Or? It is, actually. Right. It was mostly due to the fact because it was a control room, like you say, and it was, it, you know, it was NORAD or it was NASA yeah. to the elves. So every elf is sitting at a console with a lot of detail. You know, he has his own monitor. He has his own tablet, mouse, you know, his own. He actually, most of them have their own, like, little pictures, frames, and stuff like that just to show that they're individuals. Um, so that set on its own, you couldn't even tumble in Maya. You know, we were always loading the set in pieces. Right. Looking at it in pieces, rendering it in pieces, stitching it together. Yeah, as far as the elves, it was... Uh huge undertaking. I think I, I, I counted the elves, I, I think, or let's say, I didn't count them, I looked at the number, let's say. I think there was about 15,000 uh, total, and, and so I think every group of elves was interacting with different parts of the environment. There were some on the catwalks, there were some on the, the main stairs, there were some behind the consoles, and then there were uh, three groups on the floor that were each rushing towards a different um, door. Then there were like big areas that they had to avoid. So, yeah, I mean, it was definitely it got split up into many different pieces on the sim on the effect simulation side on the massive side. Was it also slightly harder to sell because inherently the elves are dressed pretty much the same? Whereas, like, if you're doing a crowd sim for a stadium, you can play off lots of clothing variations to give you lots of like just variation between the agents. But mm -hmm. here you've got agents that pretty much look similar. Obviously, they're not in close-up, and the heroes don't, but... I think, you know, the, the one thing that was the, the hardest part is that the, the ice has a certain kind of glow to it. And so there's sort of this internal lighting that comes off of the floor in all the icy environments. And it was not getting properly captured by the elves. The elves were coming out way too dark. So they're literally... And, and they were also probably on average about nine pixels high each. You know, so it was just like all these little black shapes kind of hovering around, you know, so we had to really... And, and not helped, I guess, by the number of reflective surfaces in the... Yeah, exactly. Because also everything's bouncing everywhere, and so it gets a little bit... Um, it looked like that would be one of the hardest technical shots, just from terms of geometry, and, and was it... The... Um, it, 
It was one of the hard ones. You know, the, the one thing that saved us is uh, it was the, the camera was static. <laughs> so that, that always helps. Um, the, the mission control environment was actually quite, it was, it was, it was, uh, it had a lot of challenges with it. Um, the geometry, it, it had so much geometry in it. It was very, very heavy to render. So um, if you just kind of took the environment out of the box and pressed render, you know, it could easily take, you know, two hours to even start rendering and be, be done in 48 hours. In fact, so, you couldn't even load that just in Maya, could you? Uh, depends how much time you have, and, you know. I mean, it, it's, it was very painful, so we had to um, come up with all sorts of techniques. I mean, they're not nothing, no new groundbreaking techniques, but we had to really uh, formalize them so that, okay, if you have one of these environments, these are the steps you need to take. You know, and these are the things you need to avoid. Things like, uh, I mean, obviously a lot of level of detail was uh, created so that all the stuff in the background, you know, didn't, they didn't, it didn't have to be high res. Um, the elves also, we had many different representation of the elves because otherwise there was no way we could have come close to rendering all the high res. Because I'm right in thinking when some of those simulations or, or uh, massive things got closer to camera, you actually had cloth sims on the elves, of course, you wouldn't have needed to on the nine-pixel high shots. Correct. Yeah. So we had actually had four four representations of elves. So as far as uh, what we call level of detail, so there were the high, medium, low res, and then like a very small stand-in. That's you know probably a you know one percent of the number of data as the the high res. And so yes, the close-up ones had real hair. They had um, actual sim cloth. On depending on certain outfits, actually, some out, the outfits that are more um, tight and that you know kind of cling to the body didn't necessarily get full-on um, cloth um, um, cloth sims, but um, you know, and then once you got to the me the, the mediums, I believe uh, still had the high-res geometry, but had polygonal hair, so that instead of having you know the all like the millions of hair actual uh, hair geometry, it was kind of a hair helmet and uh, then you know as they got lower and lower we just started removing everything and the you know the the lowest representation was like 400 polygons for uh, you know per elf so but so the animators worked with their one uh, hero elf and then procedurally the correct resolution elf would uh, end up in the scene so. The motion graphics, I mean, I think that you could watch the movie about 20 times and you will still notice the motion graphic you haven't seen before and it'll make you laugh. I mean, a tremendous amount of work was put into, um, this, you know, the, every graphic actually tells its own story and has right. a reason for being there. So it, it, it was, um, the, Sarah, the director, was very keen on on you know really getting all that detail in there. So how were they done? Did you have like a team producing stuff in After Effects that was then mapped onto monitors? Pretty or? much, yeah. Um, and the way that we did it is we had, I mean, I think in motion, uh, in mission control or on the ship, probably had anywhere from you know, ten to fifty thousand monitors. So we again created a procedural system where things were kind of you know from a specific pool they would be randomly assigned and then lighters or uh, the uh, motion graphic team had the ability to go in and kind of change the hero graphics to something very specific. So it was a way to kind of blanket everything and then the stuff that needed to be changed, you had easy access to it. 
So in the, in, the, in the film, it's important that you have both the, as you said before, the, the reindeer kind of low-tech yet traditional Santa, but this right. is the kind of high-tech killer right. tech Santa, and killer tech Santa always says shiny surfaces and reflective surfaces, just on an epic scale here. Well, you know, our, our, our brief was Apple Store. <laughs> That's what the director said every time. She goes, I want you to feel like you've walked into the Apple Store. And everybody knew what she meant, of course, but... Yeah, I mean that's the the movie is based on that dichotomy between the the old world sleigh and the way it used to get done, which represents Grand Santa and Arthur, and then the the new way of high tech, which is Steve and Santa's fallen into it. So I guess the only other question to ask you is: Is it possible to wrap up a bicycle with three pieces of sticky tape? Of course, <laughs> if you have the right elf. And there were some aspects of the plot that were, I guess, full from an outsider's point of view, heavily between the two cameras. I guess you'd have had to have explicitly hand animated or keyframed a lot of the wrapping stuff, but in another world you might have done that with some sims, but wrapping bikes and stuff was all sort of a pretty key point. It is, that's actually something that kind of um, took us by surprise along the production. We realized that we didn't spend as much time preparing for that as we could have. So when those instances came up, it was really kind of on the animator's plate to figure out for themselves. And we had a few uh, various techniques, and in, in a lot of cases, it still incorporated a lot of interdepartmental uh, communication, like custom shapes um, that would be interchanged throughout various shots in a sequence, so that way it gave the illusion of being a continuous piece. But um, the wrapping paper was a, a tremendous challenge, especially with the, uh, the finale when they're ride it, wrapping the bike as they ride it. Right, with more than... I mean, did the animators actually try doing it with three bits of sticky tape and kind of... We planned it that way. We did. Okay. We, uh, we have video of... Uh, we, um, we planned that sequence for about a week in advance. We knew it was about to happen, so I had a, a few people were um, tasked with basically pre-vising and trying to create a roadmap for, for um, the direction that the wrapping paper would take and the key markers of it. Uh, a lot of it we got from the storyboards, but they also took a lot of liberties that we needed to... Um, materialize and make make literal inside of the shot. Uh, so we literally did wrap up a uh, bicycle and figure out where the individual pieces of tape would come in and we followed that roadmap actually very closely once we finally got into the sequences. I remember watching an original Disney animation, it was um, Robin Hood mm -hmm. and the actor, I'm oh, sorry, the character <laughs> I should say, uh, of King Richard grabs the snake, so hiss, and ties a knot like that. Clearly at no point did his hands ever leave the snake's neck yeah. and suddenly there's a knot there. Yeah. And you know, it was a hand animated shot, worked brilliantly, mm -hmm. physically impossible. Mm -hmm. I, I, I guess my question is, do you ever get to times where you know, you go, well it's just wrapped because you know what, it's just creatively or comically valid to do it, mm -hmm. or do you get into this thing, well but what, I had to bend this thing here and this other thing and you couldn't get yourself in a knot. Uh, absolutely. I think we, we did make a conscious decision uh, in terms of the wrapping paper. They wanted to feature it as not realistically as possible, but we didn't want to go the opposite end, which is to do a lot of smear frames and then something is just there. Um, they want to, they f the, the director felt like that would increase the level of um, risk and they wanted to keep it, you know, keep things more true in that sense. So um, the times when the wrapping is going on, more or less are 
true instances of you know bending here, coming around there. There are certain limitations that we have to work around with the technology where you know you can't have a single piece that would go through all these series of motions, certainly not very easily. Um, so I would say there's definitely a bit of you know sleight of hand where we, we swap this for that across cuts and whatnot. But for the most part, the intention was really to uh, showcase the challenge of it. Because it was that really interesting mix, wasn't it, between the, the high tech, which maybe one wasn't expecting, and the, I'm going to say lower tech, but the more endearing um, kind of traditional solution that comes through later in the film. Mm -hmm. Sure. Did you uh, mirror that transition with things other than reflectivity? Was there like a uh, color palettes or, or other things that you were doing to kind of move between those worlds? Because obviously it exists in the same world, right? but by the same token be quite different because it was just a whole different generation. Well, the, the way I always saw it is it's, you know, that, that really yeah, is really uh, the difference between blue and red, you know. I mean, to me, I always saw the, 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 the high-tech world as being uh, on the bluer end of things, you know, with a lot of darks and, you know, the more traditional, like when you go into the, um, when, when, they f when we first see the sleigh. Right and we walk into the the barn and just everything's just warm and kind of everything has that just a beautiful glow and, so it's, and just much more claustrophobically smaller yeah it's actually a very yeah a lot smaller exactly so and there's also a little bit of uh, atmosphere you know but um whereas the more you know the more high-tech stuff was had less atmosphere sarah was really not very keen on adding too much atmosphere because she just wanted every kind of detail to be you know we talked about Apple stores a lot, you know. <laughs> I heard so, that, yeah. It had to be, um, well, she was really, you know, we were always walking a fine line because it had to be high-tech, but it couldn't be unfriendly. You know, it had to be high-tech, but happy at the same time. So that was, that was always like a very delicate balance, you Except know. Except for Arthur's office slash mailroom. Right, exactly. And that definitely has, that, that belongs to the, you know, the more old way of doing things, which is just, you know, sort of, very tactile and Which, full by the way, seemed pretty polygonally dense in terms of the yeah, amount of props yeah. and stuff in that room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely, uh, it was, it was dense. That's a good way to put it. I mean, you know, it's great. And one of the things about the movie that I, that I really love is that it, it really, through and through, has a heart, you know. And, um, and I think it definitely shows in all these, in Arthur's office, you know, like the magic of Christmas is safe with Arthur, you know, and um, and so everything in that in that office is uh, kind of reflects that. Arthur is, you'll come to find out, and you do know by looking at this room, he's the ultimate Christmas romantic. He takes it serious. This is, this is what it's all about. He wants every kid to be happy. Like those letters are actually not just a procedural bunch of textures they actually like like I was telling you you need to believe that Arthur is doing this the right way to do this the right way you need an office that looks like it's holding that many letters from kids around the world and you know as you're flying around the office you'll see like you said you'll see a stamp from from Africa South Africa and there's a stamp from Peru you know and we're really selling the the multinational aspect of what he's doing and the count just the fear the sheer count of the number of letters if that was his job that he would have to go through. Accompanying the letters to also sell Arthur's, you know, his, how excited he's a Christmas geek is what he is. Um, you've got just 
as the English say, baubles, Christmas baubles. You've got snow globes, you've got Christmas hats, you've got you know, plastic Santas and plastic reindeers. And the room is literally filled with them. You just wanted to see all this tchotchke just because it just tells you who he is. He believes it that much. So we're talking about 10,000 props in a 10 by 10 room. Wow. And I understand that even some of the uh, kids' handwriting messages were actually textures they'll put in there based on handwriting from absolutely crews kind of kids that's that's fun isn't it and that's what we did anybody who had kids you know the email went out on a friday night this is what they need you know have your kid write an email to santa sorry a letter to santa and ask for a gift or ask santa how he does it and we did that a lot actually we'd bring kids in and we'd interview them and we'd say what do you do worry about santa do you what do you think his biggest challenge we'd ask all kinds of questions like that and based on that, the director, she just got miles of, you know, responses that we had people write to look like kids. And yeah, if I can say anything enough times, it's the movie's designed to place you in it. You know, we want you to feel your, it's happening to your world. And in turn, that will make children say, now I get how Santa does it. Thanks for that, Mike. And as you've heard me say in previous episodes, we would love to hear from you about the show. So please email us at tv at fxguide.com. So until next time, see ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.